Hello, 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 and welcome to the third podcast. The first thing I should say is, of course, Happy New Year to everybody listening. Um, I hope you all had a great time seeing in 2017. Um, Of course, a lot of people um, would say that 2016 wasn't a good year. Obviously, there were some very sad things that happened throughout the world. Um, But hopefully, all of you as individuals and all of us collectively, as a global community, can look to 2017 with positivity and a sense of determination and resilience and doing the right thing. Um, Okay, so that's my worldview introduction. Um, But the second thing I should do is, of course, apologise, because there's been a couple of Fridays where you haven't had a podcast, and today is Wednesday, so no, I'm not changing the days of the podcast. Um, I just didn't um, do the podcast for a couple of Fridays, obviously, because of the holidays. Um, My husband was um, adamant that I stay away from my computer, which I did. And I had a great time um, over the the Christmas break and the New Year break. I took um, all in all about a week and a half off, which was really, really nice. Got to see lots of friends and family and really catch up. Um, So yeah, I'm really sorry for the lack of content. Um, But but here we are on a Wednesday. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, putting in an extra podcast there to make up for lost time and and of course we'll be back to normal with a with a podcast every Friday um so yeah I hope you all had a good break um I'd be interested to hear what you've all been up to uh interesting things that you might have been reading over the holidays um heard uh, got some tweets saying people listening to my podcast which was very nice um so yeah I wanted to tell you all what I what I got uh, as Christmas gifts um not that I'm a materialistic person to a certain degree, um, but I just, I love the stuff that my other half got for me and um, uh, stuff that I want to recommend to you guys. So you might remember in my last podcast, I had an inkling that my husband might have bought me the Dear Data book. Um, so I was very pleased that he did. And I was tearing off the wrapping paper and I could see that the Dear Data book um, was there. So Dear Data is a book by Georgia Lupi. I hope I'm saying that right, or Lupi, and Stephanie Posavec or Posavec. Um, and it's just a, it's a beautiful book to behold. Um, I love, um, I, I just, I, I, I love the premise of it. I love that, uh, well, for those of you who don't know, um, the Dear Dear Data kind of came from Georgia Lupi and Stephanie Prosovec, the two authors, writing postcards to each other. And um, they did this for quite some time. I'm not sure exactly how long, uh, but they did. And they they made a book out of it. Um, And the book is just full of um, hand-drawn, and that's what I love about it. It's it's pretty much all hand-drawn. Um, postcards that they sent to each other um, where they're, you know, commenting on uh, data and findings that, you know, were, were you know, cut for one reason or other coming into their lives or something that they wanted to um, touch on or express. And uh, both the authors have worked with children um, in you in hand drawing um in infographics um and so there this this body of work that's in my hands right now I've just got it in front of me um is just so inspiring because i think often when we think about infographics um we think that it has to be this 
um, very polished, digitised thing. Um, But actually, this book kind of, um, you know, is, is encouraging to say, well, actually you you can um produce something hand drawn and a little bit rough around the edges and it still be very compelling and informative and and do the job um of course a hand drawn look is not always um appropriate of course we're in market research we deal with um clients who might not feel that that uh, fits their brand look and feel but uh, nevertheless it's very inspiring Um, lots of nuggets of inspiration that you can take away. Um, So I'll just read the back of it, the synopsis, just to give you um, some ideas. So it says here, see the world as a data collector. Every week for a year, oh, there you go, it was a year. Every week for a year, designers Georgia and Stephanie sent each other a postcard capturing information about something different from their digital activity to their emotions. Things like, how often did you check the time this week? How often did you make a list or apologise? What music did you listen to? What journeys did you make? But they didn't write it, they drew it. Containing their 52 postcards along with their thoughts and ideas for drawing with data, Dear Data shows that information can be an artistic material for all of us. It will inspire you to notice what's around you, capture hidden patterns and find creativity even in the smallest details of your life. And you can find more at dear-data.com. And uh, once again, I do not have shares in their businesses to promote their book. Um, But, you know, in market research, there's such a focus on... um, storytelling in data and this is one book that I'm surprised hasn't been shouted about from the rooftops um but it should be um you know I think it should be one of the many standard books that every business should have on its shelf um in the market research department if you're in a big company or or if you're an agency it should just be be on every other de- other desk. Um, but anyway, enough about dear data. Um, some other things um that I got that I wanted to share. Okay, some some fun stuff. Um, so my husband bought me a cocktail making kit, and I looked at this and I thought, oh, this is great. But you know, we need the stuff, right? We need the the alcoholic uh, spirits and uh, the the syrups and all of this to make the fancy cocktails. And he just looked at me, and went, "Well, open that box over there." And I did, and I had gingerbread syrup and uh caramel syrup and because I, I love fruity and sweet cocktails I've got a massive sweet tooth um so yes cocktails were being made and and now I am a um I think they're called mixologists um a nice way of saying a cocktail maker so yes I've become uh, slightly versed in the art of mixology um but yeah what else uh Harry Potter Trivial Pursuit <laughs> which uh, I played with my other half um, after after watching all Harry Potter films in two days, I'm a massive Harry Potter fan, and I got loads of the answers right, which, depending on your viewpoint, is either really pathetic or really cool. Um, I used to play the piano many moons ago, um, started playing when I was about eight, stopped playing when I was about 12. A little bit of a sad story, um, nothing too heart-rendering, though. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was 12, and so lots of things in the house were was sold including um rather sadly um my dog and my piano um so all you know all these years that have gone past I've always thought you know I'd love to have um a piano again so uh my husband not uh well because our, our house uh the doorway is slightly small can't get a piano in uh but bought me a keyboard and so that was wonderful because it's a 
big hefty thing and um, sounds exactly like a piano doesn't feel exactly like one but sounds like one um, and so I'm kind of learning from scratch again and you know playing with one hand um, and just kind of starting again where I was when I was about eight um, but very fun nevertheless so some research game background music um, might come from <laughs> me composing my own pieces uh, on the keyboard if I can ever learn to read music again which I hope I will do um, but yeah so so a good time West have had over the holidays um, and I got um, a, a book called Armada by Ernest Klein um, now the reason I want to mention Armada is because it's not exactly a follow-on book but kind of in the same world as the author's first book. So Ernest Klein is the author. His first book, which I think I've mentioned in the podcast before, is Ready Player One. And um, Ready Player One is a book where um, the, the characters who you, you absolutely fall in love with live almost exclusively in a virtual world. They go to school in a virtual world. They meet people in a virtual world. Um, I have no idea what to expect with this new book, Armada, which I, I got as a Christmas gift. Um, but um, I think, you know, equally, it's probably going to touch on virtual reality. It's probably going to be set in the 80s. Um, and if you're not a massive reader and you are interested in Ready Player One, the good news is that Steven Spielberg is uh, rumoured to be making, uh, to be directing it as a, as a movie. And I can imagine it's going to have a real kind of E.T. sort of feel, very 80s, um, that kind of, um, if any of you have seen it, um, oh, what's that TV show? With the four kids, it was on Netflix. Um, Stranger Things, that's one, probably going to have that look. Um, but yes, Armada is the second book. I've started to read it. I'm, I'm, only, on, I'm only on probably like uh, page 22 or something, but already um, very good and... Um, you know, I mention these books because they are related to market research. They talk, they they visualize technology in in the past and in the future, and how we live in worlds with technology um, and and data. Um, so yes, something to read. Um, something I did over the holidays, which some of you may be shocked to hear, but for the first time, I properly tried VR. And when I say properly, because I've tried VR, um, my husband and I went to the Science Museum a few months ago and we had the VR headset where you put your Samsung, a Samsung phone in there. Um, and it was very funny because we were all in an auditorium, albeit, you know, we're all covered with these VR headsets. And we were virtually plunged into the sea with National British Treasure David Attenborough, who was narrating the sea world around us, the, uh, the various marine life and coral and so on. And that was really cool. It was very grainy and it wasn't as immersive as I thought it would be. And the only other time I'd tried VR wasn't wasn't game-led. It was just um, a kind of VR experience. So it was with LRW, who are a market research company that are doing lots with VR. Um, I was at the IIEX conference some years ago. And during the exhibition, everybody could try on the VR headset. I can't remember what VR headset they were using, but it was just a very simple challenge. Um, you know, when you've got the VR headset on, you could see that you were on a plank and you had to be 
see if you were brave enough to walk the plank and then jump off the plank into what just looked like a massive hole. Um, I couldn't do it. Although, you know, obviously logic tells you this isn't real. You know, you see it. And actually it was quite kind of not pixelated. That's the wrong word. Um, it, it looked like you in a virtual environment. It looked like you in a computer simulation. It wasn't overly realistic, but yeah, I couldn't jump. So anyway, those were my two only experiences with VR until my other half and I went to our friend's house um she she was an actor in my other half's um film and um she's got a couple of kids anyway so we're, we're around there um some other members of um the cast from the film are there as well we're all, you know we're all friends we're all hanging out anyway um so one of her kids Charlie had a PS4 VR headset like the whole gear right and um you know, everybody was having a go, playing um, playing on it. And, you know, you're watching them being in awe, but you can see what they're doing on the screen. So it's very cool to actually watch. And they were egging me on to try it. And for a while I was protesting. And the reason I did is because when when I have played games in the past, I've become very addicted very quickly. And studying games means that I know why. Because... I am perpetually, my, my psychological needs are perpetually satisfied through the autonomy that I'm offered in a game, through the sense of mastery and purpose and relatedness. So I know all of these things, but I get so sucked into them that actually, unless it's really for, um, I guess you could say work purposes, I don't often play games for enjoyment because I know that they will just take over my life which is really sad. You know, for a long time, I played World of Warcraft, had to kind of wean myself off it. We'd be playing until five in the morning. Same thing with Farmville, same thing with a load of other games. So um, I guess, you know, maybe this is where my love for games comes from. So, so anyway, I didn't want to play the VR headset with, with everybody there because I guess I was sort of worried that I'd enjoy it too much, that I'd, I'd basically play it and demand that we have one at home, which I know if my husband and I had one at home, we'd probably never talk to each other um, because probably one of us would be wanting, playing it all the time. But anyway, I did try it and um, it was fantastic. Um, it was truly um, like you could feel the movement. So I played uh, very briefly two games. So I, I don't like horror. But I did play a little bit of Resident Evil 7. Um, so when I put on the VR headset, I'm in this absolutely creepy room. It looks like something out of the Blair Witch Project. And I looked down and my hands were well, not my hands, obviously, but they I could see hands there. Um, and I just sort of was taken quite aback because I did I didn't expect that. You know, you expect that when you're in a virtual reality that you're looking around. Um but you don't really sort of look at yourself. But anyway, I'd looked at myself and I was a man. I was a man sitting in a chair and tied up. And somebody in front of me um, was clearly hurt and on the floor and bleeding and all this. But then they, they kind of stood up in a very zombie-like way and started to walk towards me. Anyway, well, I might as well say I absolutely shit myself. <laughs> Whipped off the VR headset. And everyone was like, okay, you know, you told us you don't like horror, but at least you tried. Um, but God, it just felt it it felt like you were there. And I could totally see how absolutely addictive VR would be. I could totally see how 
it could offer so much escapism to so many people. It was an amazing experience, although I must have only been, you know, in that moment playing that game for all of a minute and a half. Um, I don't think it's something I'll ever forget. Um, but anyway, so I, 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 I had a go at that. And so Charlie, um, uh, the, one of the children there of, of our friend, put on a more lighthearted VR game. I think it was one that came with the, the console and everything. Um, it was kind of Super Mario style, very bright colours, you know, a, a, a kind of le a level-based game and, you know, jumping on the mushrooms and everything. But you were a little, you were controlling a little robot. Um, and that was fun. Um, and you really feel like you're moving because when the robot is moving forward in front of you, you're walking behind. So you're walking in a line um, one after the other. And as you're running with this little robot, um, you feel that you're moving forward, but of course you're not. I mean, I was sitting on the edge of a, a, a bed at the time and I really did feel like I was moving forward. Um, but yeah, this just this stuff just makes me more certain than ever that games combined with virtuality for research is the future. Um, it's not even the future, it really should be the now. I mean, we have the technology for it. Um, I think we have the ideas you know, maybe some of the things that are holding us back is where do we start, right? And and the ethical side of things, which is um, very important. But um, anyway, so I recommend if anybody uh, listening hasn't had a go at using a virtual reality headset, do use one and try to use one from a games console. Um, of course, I tried the PS4 Um there are others out there of course there's also the oculus rift let's not forget so yeah try one because i mean i i bought one actually um my husband and i bought one i haven't used it though um it was it's like a little it's kind of copying the google cardboard virtual reality headset so you, it's again another one where you stick your mobile phone in and it was um the whole point of us buying it was so that we this particular one it was from a supermarket is because it was for children in need and the idea is that you buy this cardboard uh, virtual reality set for, for use with your mobile. And when you're watching the Children in Need show, which is very popular here in the, the UK, you could watch elements of that show with, with the headset on. Of course, all the money raised from purchases of these headsets would, would go to the Children in Need uh, charity with BBC. But again, it's just not the same. I think you need to have the proper ones, not the ones with your mobile phone, like the proper headsets, the Oculus Rifts and the PS4 headsets to really feel how amazing it is. Um, but anyway, I think I've talked enough about the virtual reality. Oh, no, actually, I haven't. No, there's another thing I wanted to say. So um, if any of you have not watched Black Mirror, um, which is a, a series of different um, episodes, but they're not, they're not part of one story, so each episode is a completely different story, they are absolutely fantastic, thought-provoking pieces of storytelling. Uh, Black Mirror was started by, uh, largely written by Charlie Brooker. Um, it started off, maybe that was just just aired in the UK. Anyway, so Netflix, it's on Netflix now. And I think, you know, maybe some more funding there means that they've got these really big stars in each episode. Uh, one I watched recently had Bryce Dallas Howard in it. Um, and as many of you know, she was in um, the most recent Jurassic Park. Anyway, so the reason I mentioned Char uh, Charlie Brooker and the Black Mirror series is because 
they are also steeped in how people will interact with technology in the future. Um, and it's all different elements of um, technology. So virtual reality, artificial intelligence, gaming, um, yeah, how we use social media, how we use our mobile devices. And, um, you know, of course, the, the title is Cleverly Black Mirror. So that's how, how he's referring to, you know, when our laptop screens and our mobile screens don't have anything on, on it. They're just black mirrors, aren't they? So it touches on that. Um, and there's three that I think if you if you want to watch Black Mirror um, and want to be inspired by how technology will be used in the future to get you thinking about technology in the future and with market research and data, then the three I would recommend and I um, searched what the episode names were before I started the podcast was um, was Playtest. So that was to do with gaming. Uh, that's a really good one to watch. Uh, the other one is called Nosedive. That's the one with Bryce Dallas Howard. And the one my husband and I watched last night, which was probably the only happy ending Black Mirror I've ever seen, um, was called San Junipero. And um, that was very virtual reality focused and dealing with themes of death and consciousness and what is consciousness and, and yeah, they're absolutely fascinating. So if you are looking for any content to generate, you know, that, that sense of inspired energy about the future of market research and data collection, and just in general, how we'll all be using and interacting with technology, you know, read the books I've mentioned, watch Black Mirror. Um, it's important to look at other content anyway, and always kind of stay within your industry. So yeah, have a look at those. Um, but yeah, the these TV shows, the Black Mirror and, and the books like Armada and Ready Player One, there's so much about ethics in there that I, I'd love to get my teeth into. And, um, you know, I, I think it's important that you know if this is a gamification podcast and uh, sorry games and gamification podcast it's important to talk about the ethics and um as part of my book i have written a section on ethics and 10 steps of care so um if you've heard an earlier podcast you will know that i'm writing a book about games and gamification market research and one of my 10 steps of care is to never disguise your game-based research platform as a game for entertainment purposes only or, you know, as a quiz or anything else that might mislead the participants into thinking that the platform is anything but a survey, you know. Um, and I think I've touched on this before, but the reason I mention it again is because very recently I read a blog um, from a company of which I will not name a name, obviously, but but actually use the word disguise, you know, to disguise a survey as a game or a quiz, I do not recommend that at all. Um, you know, you should be transparent about the platform and what you're doing. But I think with all these things that, you know, are are shown to us in the Black Mirror episodes on, on, on Netflix and these books about virtual reality and technology, is I think we, we need to be really clear about what kind of data we're collecting and how we're using it all the time. So one of the great things about the use of games and gamification in market research is that we can um, collect so much data from observation. But I think it's important to tell people how you're doing that, how that data is going to be used all the time. You know, have an about section, have a data 
privacy section, have an ethics, data ethics section that people can access on your website or through your gamified survey or your research game. Um, and also, if you're using virtual reality for research, of which some companies already are, you know, it's your responsibility to be at the forefront in ethics in that area if you are at the forefront of using that technology. And speaking again of technology, um, another thing I did over the holidays that I'd like to recommend is uh, going to the Design Museum. So the Design Museum used to be at Shad Thames in London, so next to the River Thames. It's now moved to be near Holland Park Station in Kensington. And yeah, that was really fantastic. Quite a small exhibition, um, but there was... Uh, there was so much there that was thought-provoking. So the, the exhibition was called Fear and Love. Of course, this is a very broad umbrella term, you know, fear and love. But, you know, the design museum curators, uh, from what I'd read, had put forward this title to many designers who they wanted to contribute to the exhibition, and they just had to produce a piece under the heading of, of Fear and Love. Very simple. But what came out of that was a huge amount of focus on unexpectedly actually on fashion and and technology so I was particularly interested in seeing a robot um, which would follow you around and it was just it was really cool so the robot was called um, let's have a look uh, Mimus and um, I'll just read you a bit because I, I took a photograph of the um, the kind of exhibit synopsis so it said, this is Mimus, a giant industrial robot that's curious about the world around her. I like that Mimus is female. Mimus has no eyes. She uses sensors embedded in the ceiling to see everyone around her simultaneously. If she finds you interesting, Mimus may come in for a closer look and follow you around. But her attention span is limited. If you stay, too, if you stay still for too long, she will get bored and seek out somewhere, someone else to navigate. Uh, this insatiable responds to a commonly cited social fear that robots are taking work from humans. The World Economic Forum predicts that robots will take 5 million jobs over the next five years. Rather than fuel such fears, Madeleine Gannon prefers to see robots as a companion species. Ordinarily, robots such as this one are used to do highly repetitive tasks on a production line. But Ganon has reprogrammed Mimus, named for its ability to mimic, so that it can seem sentient and interact with us. The installation proposes that we overcome our anxiety by establishing a bond between human and machine. Um, and I do actually have some videos of, of Mimus. I, I put them on Twitter if anybody is, is interested in having a look. Uh, but I mentioned the name there as I was reading that um, and I didn't know who she was either so I mentioned the name um, Madeline Gannon and um, it, uh, the explanation here about who, who this lady is is that she heads up a company called Atonation, um, a re sorry a research studio which is based in Pittsburgh that invents better ways to communicate with machines. What an interesting um, organisation to work for. Uh, Gannon designs and implements tools that explore the future of digital making. Yeah, so what was great about that, he, there wasn't much you could do, right? You you know, you look at this giant robot, it's probably about seven or eight foot tall, and, you know, you're, and, and it's behind this big glass, it's, you know, it's in a big glass cube, and 
um, you know, I was just kind of watching it and it was, I think it was sitting in what was, what's probably like a default mode. But what I found so interesting, and I started to walk closer to it, was that it looked like it was breathing. It just slightly went up and down and up and down. And as I got closer, um, it kind of became awake, like it, like it sensed my presence there. And then, because um, it's got this kind of black lens, um, like an eye, if you like, and then it would just kind of zoom in and would look right at me. And so... I'd kind of like dash quickly to the left and to the right to see if it would follow me. And and sure enough, it did. So it did feel like there was a bond between me and this machine. Um, and, and that's all it was. It was just you interacting with this machine. But it was, it was nice to interact with a machine in that way and feel like it was almost slightly human. And it wasn't creepy. It wasn't creepy at all. Um, you know, so, so that was part of the exhibition and um, some other elements that I thought were fascinating were this was a section on what is called a death mask uh if you ever get a chance to go to design museum and see this exhibit you, you should but you can buy the book fear and love at the design museum um so these death masks they look beautiful they are so intricately made and one of the um people that work at the design museum um, explained to me and my husband that these death masks were all 3d printed but they looked um they looked like they were made of glass and and some of them have this kind of cloudy pigment inside but again what i found fascinating about that is another another way in which technology is is said to be used so actually i'll, I'll read the synopsis for the exhibition because it probably explains it a lot better than what i can so right vespers revives an ancient cultural artifact the death mask as a speculative piece of wearable technology Traditionally made of wax or plaster, these death masks have been created with a state-of-the-art 3D printing, the ability to print at the resolution of nerve cells heralds a future of biological products that we can wear as external support systems, for instance, feeding, feeding us nutrients or rebalancing microorganisms. In this body of work, Neri Oxman, who is the director of Mediated Matter, a design research group at the MIT Media Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Larry Oxman has created three series of masks, each one representing a different phase at the end of five imaginary people's lives. The first series is more traditional, traditionally representational, crafting an artistic image of that person's character. The second series is more intricate, designed to capture the wearer's final breath. The third series is designed to contain bacteria that help degrade the body after death. God. Um, working at the cusp of a new generation of manufacturing technologies, Neri Oxman confronts our most essential fear, death, and finds ways to commemorate loss as well as expressing wonderment at the potential for new life. Um, but these things are beautiful to behold. I mean, how they've got them in the museum, they, they look like ornaments, very intricate um, kind of glassy, colourful ornaments, and, and they look beautiful. I mean, some of them look like something out of Alien and look really freaky, um, but they're, they're, they're great. Um, I think with this podcast, I might put up some images, actually, because I really, in my own words, cannot capture um, some of the content that I'm um, telling you about here. But yeah, I mean, there was, there was other um, technological aspects in the exhibition, um, with fashion, for example, where um, designer Hussein Chalian, if anybody hasn't heard of 
uh, Hussein Chalian. He is a fantastic um, fashion designer who established his label in 1994 or 95. Um, he was some someone I certainly was inspired by when I was at um, the London College Fashion. Um, anyway, his part of the exhibit was called Room Tone. And um, I'll read it again to you. Um, I won't go into so much detail. But um, Room Tone is a response to the nature of London life. It presents a series of studies of emotional states that might characterise life in any major city, but in London are perhaps more likely to be repressed. Working with microchipped maker Intel, Hussein Chalian has created two wearable devices to reveal these mental states. One is a pair of sunglasses embedded with sensors that measure the wearer's brain activity, pulse and breathing rate. This data indicating the wearer's stress levels is transmitted by Bluetooth to a projector concealed in a belt. The belt then projects an image reflecting the state of mind to the outside world. Well, I mean, where do you want more links to market research than in that? You know, something that you can wear, wear projects projects your emotion on a screen that other people can see. I mean, it's truly fascinating stuff. Anyway, there was other parts of the exhibit that were equally um fascinating there was a section about um sustainability in, in fashion and and the use of grinder which is um, an app um primarily designed for um same-sex um couples or dating so yeah it was just really great and um you know other parts of the exhibition were also very um useful to to me because i do consider myself a designer and the um exhibit that is going to be at the design museum that uh, just stays there is called the designer maker user and if if we as an industry in market research are becoming more design focused then we do have to look at uh, exhibits like this one at the design museum we do have to read more books about design and user experience um, and what I loved about this designer maker user part of the museum was that it shows you how people use design to solve problems, whether that's, you know, designing the London Underground Tube map or or street signs um, or bicycles or telephones. So, that, you know, people go through that whole process of being the designer, the maker, the user. Anyway, so things that are coming up for RTG or for, or for me, if you like, I have a, a presentation that I um, submitted to the impact mrs annual conference was accepted which i'm absolutely delighted about um i have spoken at an mrs conference before it was the mrs kids and youth conference um oh this is this is a while ago now i think this is pretty much when i first started rtg probably about a year in um and uh, it was a great a, a great experience speaking at that um kids and youth conference but i've i've always wanted to speak um at the impact conference the um mrs annual conference um so it was accepted which i'm really pleased about um i'll be sharing a client case study with the audience and i've blogged about this a little bit on the rtg website if you go to our blog you can find it i can't reveal too much about what i'm going to be talking about um because the the mrs naturally wants to keep the content um you know undercover until the big day uh, so i'm afraid i won't be able to give you any spoilers but um, I can say that the talk is, um, like I said, a client case study, and it's to do with the use of games 
to develop uh, apparel products, uh, fashion products. But my talk is very much focused on slow fashion. This is becoming a movement in the fashion industry, something I feel very passionately about. Um, but my argument is that just because you have slow fashion, it doesn't mean you have to have slow style. And so this case study talks about how we could encourage that. Because part of the reason, in my opinion, that people don't go for slow fashion is because they don't want slow style. Styles are always changing. Um, and not everybody wants to have staple pieces in their wardrobe, like a black blazer and black skinny jeans and blue jeans and a stripy jumper. You know, these basics that you can upcycle over and over again that never go out of fashion. Because some people have like to have that pop of style and, and, you know, the trends of the season. So that's really where my talk is going to be focusing on. So you can find more information about it on the RTG blog. Um, the talk will be on Wednesday, the 15th of March at 10 past three in room two. Um, now, of course, there is a fee for going to the MRS conference um, for one day or for two days. Or actually, there's also a ticket option just for the MRS party. But if you are interested in coming and seeing the talk, um, I would encourage you to book your ticket sooner rather than later um, because I believe that the MRS are still doing their early bird uh, discount um, for, the, for the tickets. So I encourage you to all have a look at that if you want to go. But there's all, I mean, you know, my talk aside, there's other really good talks going on. Um, Mark Earls, who I've met in the past, uh, author of Heard and, um, oh, copy, copy, copy. Yes, that's one, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's written these two highly acclaimed books and he's going to present a talk called Memories of the Future, which I'm really keen on seeing. There'll be people there from Facebook talking. Um, Caitlin Moran will be there. She's a columnist and best-selling author. Um, and, of course, the MRS party is something to look forward to. Boogie the night away. Um, so, yeah, go on the go on the blog at the Researcher Gaming website if you want to have... Uh, a little bit more insight into what I'll be talking about at Impact 2017. Um, there will also be other talks on games and gamification as well in in this in the whole session. My talk will be first, followed by two two or three other talks, I think. But yeah, what else is coming up? So if you want to catch me doing some play shops, I do them with the MRS. Oh, I, I do some with other companies as well. But with the MRS in, in the UK, I'm doing an infographic and data viz course. And that the first one will be on Friday the 10th of Feb, so not long away. Then there'll be one on Wednesday the 7th of June, then another one on Friday the 24th of November. Um, so I'm very excited about um, running those um, play shops and of course I'll be talking about the Dear Data book obviously but what I'm really excited about is my completely new look games and gamification workshop that used to be that I would have a you know introductory play shop at the MRS it would, it would be one day and then an advanced course which again would be one day, but we've completely revamped it now. So it's a two-day course covering the introductory and advanced areas of games and gamification where people could come along and design their own research games, get a really in-depth understanding of these methodologies from a behavioral economics perspective, from a cognitive psychology perspective, from an implicit behaviors perspective. And really what we wanted it to be, um, me and the organizers at the MRS, is much more of a one-stop shop. So here's where you come 
for two days, learn everything you need to know. You've got your, you know, you've got the arsenal of knowledge there to go out into the world and produce your own designs for gamified surveys or research games. Um, so, you know, before where it was two different workshops spread across different different days probably wasn't, um, you know, a great idea because, you know, the introductory workshop would be, for argument's sake, in February, then the advanced one would be in, like, May. Um, whereas, you know, having it as a two-day workshop, as a one-stop shop, would, you know, we felt would be better. So if you're interested in coming along to that, just go onto the MRS uh, website and, and have a look at game-based research methods, a two-day player shop, which will be, uh, the first one will be on Thursday the 4th and Friday the 5th of May uh, this year. So some other stuff going on. Um, this isn't anything I'm speaking at, but just something I'm incredibly interested in and thought I'd mention. I think I might have mentioned it on another podcast. I'm not sure. But I'm attending the New Scientist, which is a magazine, if anybody uh, hasn't heard of it, the New Scientist Instant Expert Artificial Intelligence event, which is from 10 in the morning until 5 in the evening on Saturday, the 18th of Feb. It is um, in Euston, in London. It's at the Royal College of General Practitioners. And the speakers include, uh, some of these people I haven't heard of actually, Kirsten Dutenhan, uh, Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of Hertfordshire. Lillian Edwards, Professor of E-Governance at the University of Strathclyde. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, Irina Higgins, Research Scientist at Google DeepMind. Simon Lucas, Professor of Computer Science at the University of Essex, plus two more speakers to be announced and hosted by Michael Brooks, new scientist, consultant and author of bestseller 13 Things That Don't Make Sense. So it's quite pricey. So um, the tickets are between £129 and £149. But dare I say, that's a lot less than some one day conferences in the market research industry. And I I, I just really feel like I'm going to get a lot out of that. So I'm looking at go, looking forward to going. And that's, uh, again, on Saturday, the 18th of Feb. Um, right now to get on to different matters, because I am aware, first of all, that I've got a cold. So this podcast isn't probably sounding great because of my voice. Um, but also because um, I'm just conscious of the time. So um, with that in mind, let's move on to today's questions or question, should I say. Um, only one question for today's podcast, just because I think it's probably going to take up a lot of time in, in answering it. Um, and this question is from Thon Theory. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Who is a um uh, who is a market researcher and blogger, and um she she blogs at mrxplora.com, and um she very kindly uh, tweeted to say that she was listening to the, the the first couple of podcasts, and then um sent me a message on Twitter with with a question to answer in today's session, um and the question that she has asked is probably one that lots of researchers have asked. Um, which is pretty much where do I start? So let's read her question. Right. Um, Hi, Betty. I'm working on revamping a tracker that was product satisfaction based, now needs to be audience measurement based. I have been toying with the idea of doing this via either a gamified survey or creating an actual game to measure behaviours of the intended audience. I want to know what makes them tick, how they decide on products used in their company. 
where would you recommend I start? I'm so accustomed to satisfaction studies, even just switching to an audience measurement study is daunting. Thanks for making these podcasts. Um, Whilst on theory, this is a question I'm sure lots of people have have, uh, asked. So, you know, they're tasked with revamping a tracker or indeed, you know, any general survey product. And are thinking about using gamification, where do I start? Well, my answer tackling that question is what problem are you trying to solve? Now, obviously, it's different in your case and theory because actually the focus of the survey in general is completely changing. And we know from what you've said what your objectives are. You want to know how people decide on products that are used in their company, what makes them tick. Um, and um, later on, you, you, you I, I, without revealing too much about uh, your individual study, uh, publicly some theory um she was able to give me a bit more information about her study um but but yeah the first thing to ask is what problem are you trying to solve so in general when people are looking to use games and gamification to revamp a survey i often uh, am called as a consultant and as a research game designer who you know where we're making the game for the client um i'm asked you know, well, how can we apply gamification or game to, to our study? And my, my, the first thing I say is, well, what problem are you looking to solve? Is it that you're experiencing low levels of participant engagement overall? Um, or is it that you're noticing that a particular group in your audience are less engaged than others? Um, are you um, thinking that maybe the use of games and gamification can help um, you provide uh, more observational data to your client uh, through the use of implicit uh, behaviours in games, um, uh, you know, creating virtual environments, seeing how people move and, and react in different scenarios, you know, being very context-based. Is it that you're trying to make your survey shorter? And one way of doing that you think might be using games or gamification. Um, So identify the problem first and you're already halfway there. Now, some theory for your particular um, case, this is really going to make me put my design hat on because, of course, I'm thinking, well, you are um, speaking to a very specific type of audience. So um, she mentioned that it was information technology workers and they are um and she's looking at understanding what drives it purchasing uh where and how do um do these people learn about different software products are available um what kind of business problems are they faced with and how do they then choose products based on the problems that they're faced with so i would first of all kind of map it out in like bubbles so because you have different areas of knowledge that you're trying to capture so how so what do what business problems do people have how do they decide on a product where do they even hear about a product um i'm assuming part of your study is also looking at how people make that decision do they go uh, just on recommendations from colleagues for example do they how do they want to read a product spec first you know how do they make a decision so I would categorize these I almost see it on a screen like different bubbles of different uh, categories of questions um, and break it and and by doing that you can break down the study into levels so instantly you're adding some gamification elements in there so you know you're categorizing your questions by what you want to know and you're, you're breaking them down into levels that helps the participants understand their progress 
through through your gamified server or your research game. But in order to make it compelling and engaging for this audience is quite simply to understand what they would value. What would they value and how can you provide that? Um, and what I mean by that is, well, they could play a game or they can take part in a gamified survey and you could offer points. You could offer a kind of digital reward badge that they might be able to share on social media. But will this audience of, of information technology individuals, would they value that? Um, you know, they work in information technology. I imagine that they're going to value information. Can you give them information that they would find interesting and um, make them want to play the game? Um, so one idea just off the top of my head is why not um, share with them you know, as a feedback mechanism as well as a reward, is you know, is there a way that you could share with them some of the insights that have been drawn from this study? So you know, I can I almost imagine at the end of it, there's some sort of a report that summarizes um, what people have said in in how they've answered this survey, and you know, maybe segment that by different countries. You know, that could be interesting for for people. Um, if, if you don't feel that they're going to value that kind of information, then by all means, try to understand this audience more to find out what they would value and try to offer that as a reward system or as a feedback mechanism within your game. And one of the ways that I immediately get a sense of my audience is when I start almost mimicking what they consume, because that tells you a lot about about an audience, um, and I spoke about this in my in one of my webinars with the UMR, um, the the Pokemon Go webinar, um, where you're where you're understanding your audience and 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 having em and empathising with your audience, and my recommendations in the webinar then and my recommendations now are to read the magazines that they read, um, if they are people that read industry reports. Um, listening to certain industry webinars, if you can listen in on those, do so. Um, you know, what, what are their hobbies? What are their interests? What kind of TV shows are they likely to watch? What kind of um, places are they likely to visit? You know, how would they spend their leisure time? Really get into the mind of who these people are to try and understand what they would value. Not only would that give you a good idea of how to create a reward mechanism in your gamified survey or your research game and how, how you can give them feedback, but also in how you design your platform overall. Um, you know, for example, if I was to pick up, uh, what have I got on my shelf here? Um, yeah, I've got a new scientist magazine um, and the front cover has a brain on it and it's all very um, spacey looking and there's some bright pink lightning bolts with new scientists written in white with a big pink circle in the background and the big headline is mind expanding ideas. So it's actually a very simple front cover but very eye-catching and you know just from this alone I can see that this is going to tell me something about humans and biology and about science and technology. It's got all of those um, semiotics there. And these colours kind of connote that this is futuristic and exciting. Um, and looking inside the magazine itself, it's very tech heavy. Um, 
and very text heavy as well. But interestingly, lots of the images that they've provided, um, many of them are kind of hand-drawn or digital images. Some of them are very abstract. It kind of remind me of an old 80s like talking head video. And, you know, and all of these things give you an idea of how to design for these audiences because of course these magazines these industry reports the, you know all this literature that is consumed by your audience the way that that literature has been developed is of course developed and designed to engage with that audience as best as possible so by looking at the literature that your audience consumes is almost a bit like cheating because you're you're looking at a magazine that they're likely to read whatever it might be as like, oh right okay well how have they how have they designed their content to engage with with this audience that I know is the same as my audience right what clues can I take from that what th what kind of uh, design elements can I borrow it might be as simple as the font it might be something in the layout you know um, for example again I'm just flicking through this new scientist magazine and you know there's a double page spread here where the numbers are really big and bold so so this is um a list of one to ten so one to thirteen and each page is about a different part of uh, the future different mind expanding ideas so there's a big there's big numbers two three four um the colors are bright so there's an or orange color going throughout there's these images that kind of summarize the section that are very abstract looking there's there's some infographics in there there's quotes that are kind of off to the side there's lots of geometry as well um connecting lines um hexagons cubes triangles you know although this doesn't sound like a big deal I'm what am I talking I'm just talking about colors I'm talking about images I'm talking about symbolism these things have been very carefully designed to engage specific audiences so have a look at um who your audience are understand them copy um how they consume literature consume the literature that they consume that will give you a good idea of what, what they value. That will give you a very good idea about the, the how you can go about your design in terms of the look and feel. Um, and once you're there, um, then that's where it's important to start um, developing mock-ups and experimenting. So I know for me, when I go through that stage, because I do this too, I absolutely do this too. In fact, I was working on a not so dissimilar study not that long ago, and I was going out and buying the magazines that I knew this audience were likely to read, and I even listened in to a few web, uh, industry webinars that I know that they would be likely to listen into, and it gave me such a good, you know, insight into how what makes them tick like you say you know you wanted to know what makes them tick um as sonitri uh son theory said sorry um uh, you know so once i've done that then I'll, my next step is to do some mock-ups so maybe it might be three or four mock-ups in photoshop now of course if you don't have photoshop skills there's nothing wrong with hand drawing this stuff out um, and then, you know, maybe speaking to a colleague who knows Photoshop or hiring someone who knows Photoshop or, or Adobe Illustrator to make those drawings come to life. And that way you can then share that with some people that you know who are potentially of the same, 
you know, age group as your audience, maybe do a very similar job and say, what do you think? Do you find this engaging? Does this make sense to you? Um, I always do the mum test. I was designing a website. So although this is completely different, I was designing a website for um, a government organisation that was working closely with. So this was to do with technology and games. So this is this was a little while ago now. And I designed their website and I was aware that people from the borough in London would be accessing this website. People of all ages, you know, all different shapes and sizes, different uh, cultural backgrounds, different levels of income, different levels of education. And I got my mum to look through this website and I just watched her because she she really kind of fit the bill of, of this audience as someone who English wasn't isn't her first language. Um, she's not necessary she's not overly you know it or technology literate um sometimes like many people of, of her generation can struggle with mobile devices and things like that so i thought well this is great because i so there's a lot of people in the borough of london that are going to access this website who will be very much like my mum where english isn't their first language and they're, and they, they're not necessarily it literate so as i watched her interact with, with this website i had so many aha moments like for example, she, you know, she expected certain buttons, for example, to be in certain places on the screen, and they might not have been. So instantly, I'm writing notes down, ah, right, okay, move that button here. Um, there was some text that was, you know, quite long, sentences that were quite long, like complex sentence structure, so that needed to be shortened and be made more concise. And it's the same with the, your gamified surveys and your research games. They're very creative platforms, okay? it's In a way, it's kind of like making a website. You are creating something that's very, that's visual. Um, people, you want people to have a kind of instinctual interaction with it. You don't want them to think too much about where to go next or, or where to, you know, press a button to, to go to the next question or whatever it might be. So if you do know someone who is representative of your target audience and you can do, almost do like this kind of mum test like I did with the website and show them your mock-ups understand what they think and, and share these with your client as well if your client is someone you're working with if it's an internal client speak to them as well um, and speak to as many people as possible who might have an understanding of your audience. So yes, you can go away and consume the literature they consume, like I, I recommended earlier. But you know, if you have got colleagues who work with that kind of group of people, very often pick their brains too. Um, you know, and once you've done your mock-ups, once you've got feedback on, on in terms of the look and feel, then of course it's time to program your research game or your gamified survey. There's a play test, absolutely needs to be a play test process there as well, where you might want to um, share the game with your with your colleagues, get their feedback, maybe even do a soft launch with just, you know, even 50 people, 20 people, whatever it might be, who, who again, fit your audience profile and you could do that all online. So although that's not giving you, um, from theory, a concrete design for your for your gamified server or your research game design, I hope that giving you an insight into that process and answering your question, you know, where do you recommend I start, um, is is helpful to you because again, 
you know, this is certainly something I do. These processes that I've mentioned just now is certainly the processes and workflows I go through. If you see, if you see my my home office, whenever I'm designing a new um, research game, like now, for example, I'm doing something for students um, in the UK, and I have got a wall full of things blue tacked on it, things that I've ripped out from magazines, journals, reports, um, you know, even screen grabs of certain websites. Um, just anything and everything that I've learned about the this student audience and the kind of uh, literature that they consume, the media they consume, I've blue tacked it on this wall and that, that gives me so much inspiration to go, right, I know what these people, I can get, you know, I've got a good idea of what these people would value, I know what reward systems to put into the game, I know what feedback elements to add in. And I've got a really good idea of how to design the overall look and feel and gameplay. Um, so, Cynthia, I hope that answers the question and I hope that helps. Um, again, um, you know, if you if you or anyone actually out there are interested in gaining um, information and ideas, design ideas about a gamified survey or research game that you're that you're hoping to develop, if you're looking to like some theory, revamp a, a tracker. Research through gaming does provide games for research, but we also are a consultancy, and that consultation is from yours truly. I've worked with many businesses one-on-one, -on -one providing design for research games and, ga and gamifying survey products. Um, some of them have been trackers, some of them have been survey products used by a variety of clients. Um, so without wanting to sound too salesy, please do reach out for me for help. Um, even if it's just to pick my brain briefly or a, a more long-term professional relationship, please know that we do have a consultation side to our business and we're always very happy to help and, and problem solve and work on new studies. Um, so right, saying that, um, if anyone does have any more questions about games, gamification, uh, technology, um, entrepreneurship, women in, in research, whatever it might be, um, if you have a question that you'd like answered in the next podcast, please do get in touch with me. I'm on Twitter as at Betty Adamu. My email address uh, is betty.adamu at researchthroughgaming.com um, and you can also reach out uh, by phone. Uh, our direct number is on the Research Through Gaming website. Um, so to wrap up, I will say thank you for listening. Um, I'm going to be going to India tomorrow, so I, I better go and pack. Um, I'm leaving tomorrow to fly to New Delhi. I'm not actually landing until the morning of the 6th, so it's going to be, it's going to really feel like a long journey. So I'm kind of setting off tomorrow at about 1 and I'm not landing local time in New Delhi until 10.25 a.m. Um, but I'm really looking forward to it. I've been to uh, Mumbai before, um, but I've never been to New Delhi. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm speaking on a Saturday, actually. I've never spoken, uh, done a public talk on a Saturday before. Um, but I'm speaking on Saturday the 7th, so just in a few days' time, uh, at 5.30 p.m. local time. And I'll be talking about using games for research in emerging markets for the uh, 
um, Emerging Markets Conference. It's an annual conference uh, in New Delhi, and I believe that this conference has been going for a few years already. Um, lots of professors speaking, highly intelligent people. I'm really looking forward to hearing the other talks. I'm very humbled to have been invited um, and just can't wait to, to meet more people as, as is always the case with conferences and of course see some of New Delhi so although I'm only coming back just the next day I'm talking on the 7th flying back out on the 8th and, and coming back home um, I hope I will find some time to explore New Delhi but if anybody has been to New Delhi and has some recommendations of places to go that I can fit into um, a short time period even if it's just recommendations of places to eat or best ways to travel around I'd love to hear um, your travel tips so thank you very much for listening um, I hope that today's podcast has been useful um, and again happy new year to you all and I hope this podcast catches up on the couple of Fridays that I've I've missed but we will be back to normal with a podcast every Friday now being that I am actually flying like I said tomorrow and landing on Friday um sorry landing um, yeah, on Friday morning in, in New Delhi, um, hopefully I can find an hour to do a podcast there and let you all ho know how my flight was and uh, what it's like being in New Delhi. So yeah, thanks again, everybody, and see you next week.